you're able to remain standing for a bit longer, I would invite you to do so. Um, I'd also invite you, if you um, have a Bible, take it and turn to James chapter uh, 4. Our verses this morning are going to be verses 4, 5, and 6, but I'll begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 4 to kind of fill in a bit of the context. It's on page uh, 1012. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. You could just grab that. Either way, James chapter 4, and for this morning, beginning at verse 1. These are God's words for us this morning. And here's what God says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you... Suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You may be seated. Father, we're grateful to have your word. There is no word like your word. Your word is true. Every bit about it is true. Your word is living. It's active. It's powerful. Your word does not merely share information with us. Your word transforms us. And so we would pray that by the presence of your spirit with us, as we continue our worship by looking at your word, that this would be a time of worship that you would be at work in our midst, stirring in our hearts, creating in us the very things described and called for in your word. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, th this unit that we're in, I uh, didn't have the heart to just start with verse 4 and, and shoot that at you. Uh, I had to start back at verse 1 to kind of give us a little bit of buffer before we got there. But this unit that we're in began back in chapter 3, verse 1, and it's going to go all the way over to chapter 4, verse 12. And, and it started, the bookends of this unit start with the use of our tongue, the way we use our words and our speech with other, the way we weaponize our tongues and fight and quarrel with each other. And, the, and then he went from our tongues to our hearts and uh, the need for wisdom to be residing in our hearts and lives. And, and and, 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 and now the next stage he's gone to, in other words, so our, our mouths will either reveal uh, folly in our hearts or wisdom in our hearts, and, and now he's really at the core of the issue. Well, then 
How do we know whether or not there is folly or wisdom reverberating around in our hearts? And, and it, it, it is directed to the kind of loyalty and devotion that we have in our walk with the Lord. And in our verses this morning, verses 4, 5, and 6, it's really describing something of the jealousy of God. Now, we think of jealousy in purely a negative way, probably, or for the most part, but that's not how it's going to be used and described when we unpack this notion of jealousy here. Maybe we'll understand a different way of thinking about the term jealousy. But there's two things I want us to think about this morning from this passage concerning the jealousy of God. First of all, primarily in verse 4, but bleeding over into a part of verse 5, I want us to consider the provocation of jealousy. And then picking back up somewhere in verse 5, but particularly in uh, verse 6, I want us to note something of the provision of jealousy. First of all, the provocation. What provokes God to jealousy? He says there in verse 4, out of the starting blocks, you adulterous people. Not a very inspirational thought, is it? I mean, we're probably not going to write that one in the graduation cards that we send out this year. We're going to go over there to Jeremiah 29, not, 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 not James 4.4. 4. Uh, uh, you, you may have inspirational wall art in your home. We do. We have a, a passage from the Psalms on our wall. But, but, uh, but not many of us are going to order. I, I doubt if you could even buy it. It may be a customized verse. But not many of us are, are going to order out uh, some wall art that says, you adulterous people. one reason why I think it's important to just preach through books of the Bible because if we, if we, just, if we just danced around then uh, we would never get to this dance yeah. and, and yet submitting to the authority of scriptures to preach through the Bible sometimes we bump into passages that uh, we think you know this would be, good reason, this would be a good week for Carl or Freddie to preach <laughs> and uh, I'll take a vacation Sunday so um, and, uh, now, now uh, James is not bombastic, and certainly James is just writing what the Lord has told him. The Lord is not bombastic. Six times already in the book of James, he's addressed his readers as brothers and sisters. That's a term of endearment. In fact, three times, in addition to those six times, he's addressed his readers as dear brothers and sisters. So he's not a loose cannon. Nor is the Lord a loose cannon. He's not a hothead in any way, shape, or form of the description. And yet, it does stand here that, that God's word to us this morning is a call out. Now, the premise of this call out is really rooted in an Old Testament concept. The Lord is revealed in the Old Testament as a husband to his people. For instance, there's ample verses, but let's just pick one. Isaiah 54, verse 5. 
Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. So the scriptures reveal God. It, it tries to describe the, something of the precious covenantal relationship that the Lord has with his people. And, and, and he puts that in, an, in a way analogous to a marriage. And that the Lord is a husband to his people. Well, where does that leave us? If the Lord uh, is the husband, then, I mean, I don't know. Did you ever used to play house as a kid? Uh, and uh, I hope that I never called mommy, or, or you know, when I was when we played house as a kid. I hope I was always I hope I was always smart enough to call daddy. But 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 here the Lord says, I'm 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 your husband, and so his people are analogous to being his wife. God is frequent. In fact, the whole book of Hosea is built upon this analogy that that God tells the prophet Hosea to go marry an unfaithful woman to to to, to illustrate by his life and then by his proclamation um, the, this analogy that the Lord is a husband to His people and uh, and and that the Lord is a faithful, devoted, loyal husband to His people. But sadly, it doesn't cut the same way. And a common word to describe the Lord's people in the Old Testament is harlot. Now, I haven't read all the way through the early American piece of literature uh, of um, Scarlet Letter. But I understand that the book is predicated upon a notion that uh, uh, there is a certain element of shame uh, directed to a certain lady in the village who has to wear a large scarlet A on her chest to duly note what kind of person she is. Now, of course, I think part of the underlying premise of the book is that when you get right down to it, probably everybody should have had an A on their chest. And, 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 and that's really, I, I think, what the scriptures try to underscore is that in a sense, we all should have came this morning. Maybe, maybe some of you are better at it than others of us. So maybe, maybe I'm better at it than you. I don't know. But, but maybe, some, you know, maybe we should have different size font that we have to wear based upon how we're at on the spectrum. But at some level, each of us, each of us come this morning with a note of adultery, spiritual adultery is really what we're talking about, or an, a, another way of, of describing that from the Old Testament, spiritual adultery is likened unto just simply idolatry. That the Lord's wife his people are often and frequently unfaithful to our husband. The Lord is totally devoted and faithful. 
And when the Lord brings a wife into covenant relationship with himself, his people, the Lord wants full devotion from his people. He is supplying full devotion to his people, and he expects that we, his people, his faithful wife would be just that, his faithful wife, that we would have an ultimate devotion to the Lord. And he unpacks some more of, well, what are we talking about? Uh, you just come here and you call, I go to church and they call me names, you know? Well, he, he, goes, he goes on uh, in verse four to, uh, to unpack something about uh, the significance of addressing us as adulterous. Uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our our ultimate devotion, we who name the name of Jesus, our ultimate devotion can only flow in one direction. We we cannot name the name of Jesus and have a, a, a divide in the ultimate loyalties of our lives. We can't say, okay, now, so Sunday morning, that's my time with the Lord. You know, that's the time that hopefully it doesn't go too long, but we spend a little bit of time, you know, you know kind of worshiping the Lord kind of thing. We, we sing a little bit. We pray a little bit. We, well, I wish we would preach a little bit. But, um, uh, and, 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 and then, and then whew, I got that behind me. I'm done with the Lord for the week, you know. Um, no, you, you don't leave the Lord here. You, we best not leave the Lord here. We should take the Lord home with us, and we should live out our, devo- our devotion and our loyalty to the Lord throughout the week. And if we don't, uh, if we belly up to some other ultimate loyalty to the week, then we have a divided loyalty. We have a, we, we have a split devotion We are adulterous. Our Lord himself, who, by the way, uh, on several occasions called people adulterous as well. Oh, so even, even nice Jesus was uh, at times necessitated name calling. But he says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's what James is hinting at when he says, look, you you, you cannot be at friendship with the world because that's an issue of divided loyalty. If your ultimate loyalty is with God, then you have to have a clear disloyalty to the world. If you have a friendship loyalty to this world, then, then you have actually enmity with God. Or do you not know he who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy um, of God? That, that's very strong language as well. He's describing a kind of life that is descriptive of having enmity with God or being an enemy of God. Who wants that description? Well, depends on what our relationship is with the world. 
Now, when he says world here, he's not talking about just merely the physicality of this universe. Uh, he's, he's talking about the, those systems, those structures, those arrangements, those commitments in our world or in our culture that are hostile to God, that are opposed to God, that are even flagrantly in rebellion to God. And so when he says world here, he's not talking merely about physical things. He's talking about a system of thought, a system of arrangements that, that are principally opposed to God. And so why would a Christian want to like associate and, um, and um, uh, uh, pledge loyalty to that sort of system when they say Jesus is Lord? You can't do that. That would be descriptive of spiritual adultery. But let's press that even further. What is James talking about? He's a, he's just, he just called us out as, as potentially being adulterous people. Just, and he's, he said that, and, and here's how you could test case this. In other words, if, if, you're, if your ultimate loyalties are divided, you've got one foot in this thing with Jesus, and you've got one foot in this system of arrangements and commitments that are hostile and antithetical to the will of God, then you're adulterous. But pressing it even more into the context of James, what has he just been describing? Well, it takes us back to verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He, he would even dip back even further into chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 and 16. Um, he says there, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about what is false to the truth, for this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Who is it that qualifies for this tag of being adulterous, for being in, in cahoots with the world? Someone who is always at war with other people. Someone who seems to not be capable of getting along with others. You're always quarrelsome. You're always looking to pick a fight. You, you, don't, you don't even feel like you have a, 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 a heartbeat unless you're at war with somebody. And he says there, because that's percolating from a heart that is breeding bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That is not a life that's, that's filled with wisdom. It's a life that is chock full of folly, foolishness. And in contradistinction to that, he would say in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, but wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, uh, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Who is James calling out as being uh, spiritual adulterers? People who operate on a horizontal level in life that is always filled with conflict, that is always filled with fighting and warring, that is always filled with quarrelsomeness, are actually people who are living out on a horizontal plane, 
an unfaithful relationship with the Lord in a vertical plane. So in other words, someone who is always wanting to fight and quarrel is spiritually adulterous. Someone who is actually at enmity with God, someone who is actually functioning as an enemy of God. Yeah, but I love God. I just can't get along with all these knuckleheads around me. Well, John would say, we cannot say we love God and hate our brother. John would say, you're lying. James is really piggybacking on that same concept. And he's saying, now, don't be getting this concept in your mind that you and Jesus, whoa, you're, 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 you're thick you're, you're right with Jesus, and, and uh, Jesus loves you, you love Jesus, and, and yet you seem incapable and even unwilling to get along with people. Your unwillingness and incapability of not being able to get along with people only reveals that you actually don't truly love the Lord Jesus. You don't have true devotion and loyalty to the Lord Jesus. You are an adulterer. Now, verse 5 is a pivot verse then. Verse 5 uh, spills over and, and deals with, uh, really, verse 4 dealt with the issue of provocation, our spiritual adultery. Uh, but verse 5 picks up on what it provokes. It provokes jealousy. Uh, and yet, while verse 5 then overlaps into something of the provocation of jealousy, before we're done with verse 5, we're going to be introduced to the provision of jealousy. So let's look at verse Five. And it's a hard passage to kind of um, make sense of. I'll try my best uh, to, uh, to, to do so. Or, verse 5, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scriptures says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell within us? The accusation of jealous of, of, of adultery leveled in verse four is countered by the acknowledgement of jealousy in verse five. Now, as I alluded to when we got started, we, uh, we usually think of jealousy in this sliver of a description. We think of jealousy as a negative thing, as a vice. Uh, but in the scripture, it's actually spoken of as well. It's spoken of in a negative way. That's why earlier in chapter 3, he talks about bitter jealousy, bad jealousy. That's, that's the kind of stuff you don't want to cultivate. And, and yet here, he's speaking of jealousy, not in that kind of bad, bitter, petty, controlling, maniacal kind of way, but he's really describing jealousy as a holy thing. 
He's attributing that to God. In other words, it is God who is the one who is jealous in this description of verse five. Particularly, it is God who places his spirit in his people and when his people are, are, und, are, are divided in their heart loyalties to the Lord, it is the spirit of God within us that is provoked to jealousy. And that should be seen as a positive thing. That is a virtue. In fact, sometimes we even uh, swap out the word jealousy when we want to make it uh, more of a positive term. We use the word zealous. It's really the same word. It's just that zealous can connote kind of a positive sense. For someone who is zealous is someone who is committed and devoted to the relationship. In particular, someone who is jealous in the good and holy way is someone who is, is committed to protect the relationship and pursue the relationship. God himself says, I am a jealous God. Not because he's petty and controlling, because he's loving and good. Let me see if I can use a kind of a silly illustration uh, to illustrate this. Suppose there's a husband and wife uh, one evening uh, uh, having a conversation with each other after, after dinner is wrapped up and the one spouse says to the other spouse, hey, you know what? I think I'm gonna go out on the town tonight. I think I'm gonna go clubbing. Uh, and I'm really hoping that uh, going out tonight without you, that, that I'm really gonna be able to find someone special and hook up with them. And then the other spouse says, honey, uh, that sounds like a wonderful idea. I really hope that um, you find someone special. Now, hopefully, that's a hypothetical. Uh, although I have been a pastor long enough that I've actually had spouses come and describe that sort of dynamic to me. And as I'm picking up my chin and trying to keep my head from looking like I have Parkinson's, uh, I, 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 you know, I, I'm like, we just have very different concepts of marriage and love and lots of things here. Um, that would not be a loving spouse who would either A, jump out and go clubbing, or B, who would encourage their spouse to jump out and go clubbing. You'd say, what's wrong with you people? And really, though, the illustration I'm trying to say is that, is that the Lord is never going to be that kind of spouse. The, Lord, the Lord's loyalty and devotion to his people is such that he not only demands loyalty and devotion from his people, but he actually supplies the goods so that his people can respond to him with loyalty and devotion. And the goods that he supplies, we'll see in a moment, is just capsized in one word, grace. You see, the Lord does not do polyamorous covenants. 
The Lord does exclusive loyal covenants. The Lord orders marriage covenants, covenants to be exclusive and loyal. And, and, and because why? Because that's to reflect how the Lord does covenantal relationship with his people. The Lord displays great jealousy in all of the good, holy, protective, and pursuing sense with his people. And yet his people have, and we'll sing about it before we're done this morning, his, his people still have some ele- elementary vestiges and leftovers in our hearts and lives that would if we're not guarded and protective that would cause us to consider spending our lives with little or no thought of the Lord's goodness that would prompt us to invest our lives with little to no disre- with, with no with no regard uh, with disregard or no regard for the Lord's will in our lives. Even to commit our lives uh, uh, in such a way that we show disdain toward the Lord's word, or even in this context, uh, to live in a quarrelsome, consistently warring pathway. If left to our own inclinations and devices, That's kind of where we're at. And yet what verse 5 is showing us is though, but that's not the end of this relationship. The Lord is jealous for his people. And in this current movement, in his unfolding plans, the Lord actually displays jealousy for his people by actually placing his own spirit in the hearts and lives of his people so that even when you and I begin to want to trail off and pursue other lovers, that we want to find ourselves in the arms of someone else, the Lord is provoked to jealousy and it is his spirit within us that convicts us of that. That's a good thing. In fact, if you're here this morning, you say, I think I'm a Christian, and I've never felt the convicting presence of the Spirit when I've considered being unfaithful to the Lord. That's a bad thing. In fact, I would invite you to, even this morning, to truly turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to trust only in him, to realize that he died for our sins on the cross, to not merely pardon us of our sins, I'm not trying to play that down, but to empower us to live in a whole new trajectory of life. And that's the planting of his spirit in our hearts that empowers us to live in that new direction uh, and, 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 and yet convicts us when we are entertaining going in another direction, pursuing another uh, uh, lover. You see, the Lord's jealousy is not a 
petty jealousy. It's not a petty jealousy that dumps us when we are unfaithful, but it's a powerful jealousy that pursues us and reclaims us so that we return in a sense of devotion and loyalty to the one who is fully devoted and loyal to us. He's jealous in that he protects us. And that protection is found in the provision of grace. So verse 6, he says, should there not be a more sweeter word? Perhaps, perhaps this is now inspirational wall art. <laughs> perhaps you could put this in the graduation card. Maybe you could put the other one too. I don't know, but I'm just saying it's not going to turn out well. But, um, but verse 6, but he gives more grace. The indwelling presence of the Spirit in our hearts and lives translates into when we are pondering unfaithfulness, when we are pondering idolatry, when we are pondering spiritual adultery, uh, that, that the indwelling Spirit is not just provoked, but the indwelling Spirit provides. He provides grace, grace to conquer our spiritual adulteries and the considerations thereof, grace to cure us of our spiritual idolatries and our considerations therein. But he gives more grace. Isn't that astonishing? Grace is not a static quality. Grace is to be seen as a dynamic experience. It was, in fact, the grace of God that saves us, but do you know what it is that sustains us and gets us safely home? More grace. More grace. More grace. How much grace does this God have? There is always more grace. Perhaps we have lost our focus upon the Lord. There is always more grace. Perhaps we have waned in our fervency for the Lord. There's always more grace. Perhaps we have weakened in our faithfulness to the Lord, there is always more grace because we have a jealous God who when we provoke his jealousy, his jealousy triggers more grace in our hearts and in our lives. The expectation of loyalty, the expectation of devotion that the Lord has for his people is met by the amount of grace he provides to his people. What hope do I have of remaining loyal to our God? What hope do you have of remaining devoted to our God? There's only one answer. The only hope that you and I have of remaining loyal and devoted to our God is, in fact, God will do what he says he will do. He will supply more grace.
You think he will? How much do you think he's going to provide? To restrain us from disloyalty and lack of devotion, he supplies more grace. To reclaim us when and as we are disloyal and uh, uh, lacking in devotion, he dispenses more grace. To grow us in even greater loyalty and devotion to him, he has more grace. To sustain us all the way home in a disposition of loyalty and devotion, he gives more grace. God always has enough grace. How does he always have enough enough grace? How much grace does he have? And where does all of that grace come from? Grace flows from the second person of the Godhead, who being God himself is full of everything, infinitely, and he dispenses all the grace that he has. How much grace does an infinite God have? I mean, you and I may be quite whoppers when it comes to sinning, but even our sin is always measured on a finite scale. So as heinous as our sin might be, as as, uh, as contemplative as we might plot out our spiritual idolatries, those plottings can only be run on a finite scale. But God counters the adulteries of his people with the infinite measures of his grace that he supplies us in Christ Jesus. He can conquer our spiritual adulteries. He can cure us of our spiritual adulteries. He can restrain us or, and or reclaim us or grow us or sustain us. And all of those descriptors are rooted in the measure of grace that he keeps divvying out to his people. So he says in verse 6 again, but he gives more grace. And then the next part of verse 6, I'll just introduce it, and really it, it, it really transitions us to verses 7 through 10, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. But here's what he says at the at end of verse 7. After he says, uh, at the end of verse 6, after he says, um, Uh, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, and by the way, I think it says this or something like this in Proverbs 3, 34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. we'll, we'll, We'll unpack some more of that, Lord willing, next week. But for now, we'll just note that that on the one hand, we define God's grace as an unconditional uh, 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 experience, and in that sense, it is. And yet, the unconditional grace of God that comes to us abundantly in Christ Jesus is an unconditional grace that comes to us with conditions. 
He opposes the proud. But the grace he gives, the more grace that he supplies, comes not to the proud, but to the humble. And for now, what I'll just note about this is if we are to experience the infinite measures of more grace, then the posture of our heart needs to be reeled in and we need to have a heart posture that's reflective of humility. And in this context, humility is something that would be descriptive of A, an honest acknowledgement of there I go again, trailing off into spiritual adultery. In other words, it, it includes an honest confession of my sinfulness, of my proclivity, my inclination of spiritual adultery, that I don't blame my spiritual adultery on somebody or something else, but I own it. Because when I own it, I'm being humble. And when I'm being humble, more grace shows up. So, so we honestly confess that, yes, that would be descriptive of me. I wear that A on my chest. But humility is also entailed in a sense of not only do I own it, but what I don't own is the solution. I, I can't get that number, I can't get that letter off my chest on my own. I need help. And help comes in the concept of grace. In other words, we, we don't say, like, I got myself into this mess and I'll get myself out of it. No, I got myself into this mess and but for the grace of God, I'll never get out of it. And so in that sense, even as we look at ourselves and we acknowledge that we have put ourselves in this and we can't get ourselves out of this, then humility has this, if you would, a third component to it, and humility then turns to the one uh, who supplies the grace. Humility turns to Jesus and cries out to Jesus, Jesus, help me. Help me, rescue me from my spiritual adultery. Help me, I will never crawl out of this pit. Help me, Jesus. That's a picture of humility. And God will never oppose that. In fact, God will get in the middle of that and start dumping grace afresh into our lives. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word says to us and teaches us. Father, even when your word calls us out and it's really hard to hear, yet, Father, you give grace when we hear it with humility and we receive your word. So, Father, may, may you be operative and at work in the hearts and lives of your people. Our confidence this week is not in ourselves, but, boy, do we have a lot of confidence in you. You are rich in mercy and kindness. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's